The following sermon is brought to you by Capital Community Church, located in Raleigh, North Carolina. Capital Community Church is a people awakened to a holy God. If you are searching for a new church home, or from out of town looking for a church to worship with, or simply seeking for answers, please join us for worship at 10.45 a.m. every Sunday morning and 6 o'clock p.m. for our evening service. If you have any questions, please email us at info at capitalcommunitychurch.com. We pray this sermon will help you grow deeper in your walk with Jesus Christ. I direct your attention to John chapter 7. John chapter 7. We're continuing our study in the Gospel of John. And this morning we are going to look at verses 32 to 36. 32 to 36. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? So just a few short verses. We might be tempted to skip over these. They seem fairly simple and straightforward. But here in these verses, specifically verses 33 and 34, is a massive doctrinal truth that we as believers must understand, and that is the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. The ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. Where is Jesus right now? His body. He's in heaven. This is a critical part of the Christian worldview, is that you understand where Jesus is and why he is there. One of the great challenges to the Christian faith, this is what secular ask, is where is Jesus? Where is Jesus? And you might have personally thought, man, my faith would be so increased if I could just see him for myself, if I could just see his nail-pierced hands and feet, if Jesus could only come and perform miracles right here in downtown Raleigh, then everybody would believe. Wouldn't that make the world so much easier? I mean, Jesus could start his own YouTube channel and start preaching, and the, and, and the world would be converted. Things would be so much easier, it seems like to us, if Jesus were here. I started watching a comedian recently, and at the very beginning of his monologue, he said, quote, I'm just an ordinary guy going around talking to people, kind of like Jesus, but better. And then he said, because I actually turned up. At that point, we turned it off because we don't watch blasphemy in the Castleberry household. But I think that idea is what flows through so many of the secular elite in our world, that Jesus is about as relevant as Willy Wonka and just as real. Because where is he? That's the question. Where is the Lord Jesus Christ, because he's not here in the world visibly, so he's irrelevant. 
And of course, we know the truth, the truth that the Lord Jesus Christ isn't buried in some grave over in Israel, but that he rose from the dead three days later, that he appeared to Mary Magdalene in the garden. He appeared to the 12 disciples in the upper room. He walked with several of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember, they couldn't recognize him at first, and then he started speaking to them, and they said, our hearts burn within us as he revealed to us how he fulfilled the law, the prophets, and the scriptures. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that he was seen by over 500 eyewitnesses, and John records Right there at the end of John 21, the disciples remember out fishing on the Sea of Galilee, and they see a figure on the beach, and Jesus is grilling fish for them on the beach, and he tells them, you know, cast the net over on the other side, and they they catch a, a great catch of fish. But then one day, this is close to Pentecost, I want you to turn to the left to the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24, Jesus appears to the disciples and I want to pick it up in verse 50. Luke 24, verse 50. Luke records two accounts of the Lord Jesus' ascension into heaven. This is the first one. We're going to look at the second one in a second. But look at verse 50. And he, Jesus, led them out as far as Bethany. That means he went out the eastern gate of the city, crossed the Kidron Valley, up onto the Mount of Olives. What's significant about the Mount of Olives? Jesus had made the triumphal entry into Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives. And now he's making his triumphal entry into heaven from the Mount of Olives. First, the entry from the Mount of Olives to bear the cross. Second, the ascension to take up the crown. That's the significance. And look what verse 51 says. He says, he blessed them. So he, he imparts to them a blessing. And he says, as he does this, he was carried up into heaven. And that Pharaoh, he's brought up. It's a passive verb that Jesus was, was, was carried up into the heavens where they could no longer see him. Luke 2452, it says that they worshiped him. Greek word is proskunio. It means that they literally bowed down. Uh, is there any doubt that the disciples thought that Jesus is God? No, there's not. They bowed down, put their faces to the ground, and they worshiped the Lord Jesus Christ with great joy. And then it says they were continually in the temple blessing God. Alfred Edersheim describes the ascension of Jesus into heaven like this, quote, he says, ring out the bells of heaven, sing forth the angelic welcome of worship, carry it to the utmost bounds of earth, shine forth from Bethany, thou son of righteousness, and chase away earth's mist and darkness, for heaven's golden day has broken. Isn't that beautiful? So, the second account that Luke gives is in the book of Acts. So, I want you to turn past John to the book of Acts, Acts chapter 1. So, Luke wrote both the gospel according to Luke and the Acts of the Apostles. 
and he meant them for, to, for them to be read continuously. So you could read Luke and then read Acts, and Acts picks up right where Luke ends. I want you to look at verse 6. So this describes part of their conversation as they're on their way to Bethany, on, the, on their way to the Mount of Olives. It says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now, what they didn't realize is, is they thought at this point that Jesus was going to establish his political kingdom on earth. That's what they're expecting. They're like, okay, now it's time for the second stage of the fulfillment. It's, it's time now for your political kingdom. But what they didn't realize is, do you remember all the way back to the Abrahamic blessing? Do you remember what God's blessing to Abraham was? He said, you're going to have a land, you're going to have a people, and what else? And you will be a blessing to who? The nations. You will be a blessing to the nations. Now it's time for God to fulfill that promise. Now it's time for the blessing that has been to Israel. Remember, Jesus came to the Jews first. But now it's time for that blessing to go to the world, to every tribe, tongue, and people, for them to hear of the salvation that is found only in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. And then verse 7, look at verse 7. He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. There's two Greek words for time. Jesus uses both of them, chronos and kairos. He's saying, look, uh, it's not for you to know the, the specific exact times, nor is it for you to know the, the seasons, the, the periods of history. But what you need to know is that God is in control. God is in control over both. He's control, in control over the seconds and the centuries, and that history is going to go according to God's timetable. Have you ever thought about that? That we are going along in history the past 2,000 years, and God has appointed times and seasons. God is sovereign. God is not surprised by the secularism today in the West. This is all according to a specific season, and God is continually calling out believers out of this dark world into his glorious kingdom, and he's going to keep doing that until a fixed and certain day which God has appointed in which the Lord Jesus Christ will return, and we'll discuss momentarily the judge, the living, and the dead. Verse 8, Jesus says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses. So here's this great commission that you are going to be sent out. This is the blessing of Abraham to the world. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And who's going to enable this to happen? The Holy Spirit. You are going to be empowered by the same Holy Spirit that has empowered me throughout my ministry. And then verse 9, this is the ascension itself. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up. Again, notice that passive verb. He's lifted up. He's, he's taken up. And it says, and a cloud took him out of their sight. I used to think that this was just some cumulus cloud that was passing overhead. And they're like, man, we can't see him anymore. You know, it's, he's lost in the clouds. That's, that's not the type of cloud that he's talking about here. This is a Shekinah glory cloud. 
This is the cloud similar to what Moses was in, in on Mount Sinai. This cloud takes him up into the heavens until he's out of sight. And then verse 10, look at verse 10. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men, these are angels that look like men, stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? I think the answer is pretty obvious to that, don't you think? I mean, you've literally just seen the Lord taken up into heaven by a glory cloud. I mean, I would be, I'd be sitting there looking up into the sky all day. He says, why are you looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So several observations. One, did, did Jesus ascend into heaven as a ghost? No, he ascended into heaven as a person with a body. There is a human being, a God-man in heaven right now, and that God-man will return. There will be a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not just a spiritual return, but a bodily return of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he will come again. And how will he come? The exact same way that he departed. I think that cloud that took him will appear in, in, in the skies, and there will be um, just a cosmic, glorious uh, distortion of, of epic proportions. And the Lord Jesus will come with a host of angels, Jesus says. So this, this is all what happened historically. These are all historic events. And if you turn back to John chapter 7, remember Jesus is teaching in the temple, the Feast of Booths. And Really, for the first time, Jesus openly declares this doctrine, this truth of this coming ascension. Look at verse 32 of John 7. What I want you to see first is the attempted arrest that the Jewish officials attempt on the Lord Jesus. The attempted arrest, and you'll see this very clearly here in verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. What things were, were they muttering? Well, if you look at verse 31, look at verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? So Jesus has been teaching, and John records that many people believed in him, and the, and the crowd was talking about him, and people were, were, were saying, look, is when the actual Messiah comes, could he possibly do more signs than this man? So they make the logical deduction that this man is indeed the Christ. And what happens to the Pharisees is that they are overcome with envy. Matthew records in Matthew 27 that Pilate knew when the Jewish officials brought Jesus to be judged that they brought him because they were overcome with envy in their heart. So they see people believe in Jesus. They're seeing this take place, the, the Pharisees are. And John says, when they heard the crowd saying these things about him, and the chief priest and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Here's what's interesting about this. The chief priest 
were largely made up of Sadducees, which was a different political group, a different religious group within the Sanhedrin. They were more liberal. They denied the the resurrection from the dead, whereas the Pharisees did not. The Pharisees were very stringent on these extra biblical rules. But the point being is they were different groups and they didn't like one another. But what you see right here is that these two groups, the chief officials and the Pharisees, cooperate together because they're both envious of the Lord Jesus Christ. An enemy of my enemy is my friend. You ever heard that? That's what's taking place here. So they conspire to arrest him, and they send officers to arrest him. Now, these officers are not Roman soldiers. They do not have the authority to send a Roman soldier to arrest anybody. That's Pilate's authority. Uh, these are the huperates, the the servants, they are the temple guard. These would be Levites that worked on behalf of the chief priest in order to install order in the life of the temple. And I think what's fascinating is that the temple guard is sent to arrest Jesus, but they don't arrest Jesus. They don't lay a hand on Jesus. And what happens is this. They get close to Jesus, and they start listening to his message, and they can't stop listening, and it completely stops them from what they were supposed to do. Sometimes I'll go upstairs to turn off a kid's program that my kids are watching, you know, to get them crowded up and do something, you know, and you'll go upstairs, and you'll, you know, you'll start watching what, what they're watching, and the next thing you know, Time goes by, and you're like, man, what, what am I doing? You know, I'm watching Davy Crockett and the River Pirates, you know. Um, well, that sort of thing happens with, with these officials. Look at verse 45. Look what, this is the aftermath. It says, the officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees. They said to them, why did you not bring him? What happened? I mean, he just kept teaching. You didn't do anything. What what what?" What, what, what's going on here? Verse 46, this, this is what they say. They say, no one ever spoke like this man. No one ever spoke like this man with such authority, with such gripping passion, with such truth. So they couldn't arrest him. They were just, they were just gripped by it all. So that's the attempted arrest. And then in verse 33, I want you to jot down approaching ascension. Here's where Jesus makes his prediction about his coming ascension, his approaching ascension. Jesus is giving this statement in response to seeing that the temple guard has been unleashed on him. Notice that word then right there at the beginning of verse 33. Uh, That word is is a conjunction basically saying, look, this is Jesus' response to the Pharisees and the chief priests sending out the temple guard. Jesus, in response to that, says, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. Jesus will be with them exactly 
six months until Passover and then about 40 more days until Pentecost when he will ascend into heaven. And he knows this. He knows the, the timetable. And so he says, look, I'm going to be with you a little longer, and then I'm going back to him. Now, not everyone, who, who, especially those who, who didn't believe in his deity, would understand what he was saying, but what's he clearly saying? I am going back to the Father. I am going back to heaven, to him who sent me. Once he has fulfilled his divine mission, he will return shortly. And what Jesus is saying here is this, and this is, remember, this is in response to the temple guard coming. This is in response to them trying to shush him up. Jesus is, is saying similarly to what Isaiah said in Isaiah 55, 6, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. He's saying, look, hold up. I'm only going to be here a little longer. This is a very important spiritual principle, is that you never put off obedience to Christ. You never put off faith. You never put off repentance. When there is an opportunity with Christ, you don't pass it up. It's just a little longer. What Jesus is saying right now is that this is a moment of decision. This is a moment of decision right now. Ever get that Billy Graham magazine decision? It's, it's this idea that there's this moment that you are called to faith and repentance. And, and you, when you read the Gospels, you see this moment all the time. You know, Jesus, go let me bury my dead. No, let the dead bury their own dead. You, come, follow me. You, sell all your possessions, give it to the poor. And come, follow me. And the man went away because he had many possessions. He went away sad. Take up your cross daily and follow me. Jesus calls you to discipleship, and he calls you in this moment to take up your cross, to believe in him. So this is an important spiritual principle is when the Holy Spirit is working, when Jesus is calling, don't harden your heart. You respond. If the Holy Spirit convicts you, you respond Today is the day of salvation. It's not tomorrow. The danger is, is if you put it off, like these men did, if you put it off, that moment passes, and then it's gone, like a thief in the night. And that's exactly what Jesus says. Look at verse 34. He says, look, here's what's going to happen. You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. So this is a, a prediction, an ominous prediction that Jesus makes about these religious elites, these, these rulers, these Jews. He's saying, look, there's going to come a day when you're going to miss me. And you're going you're gonna to search for me. And you will not find me. And by the way, where I am going, you will not be able to come. If you look just over in the next chapter, verse 21, chapter 8, verse 21, Jesus is going to say to, to them again, he says, I am going away, and you will seek me, and look at this, and you will die in your sin. Where I am going, you cannot come. 
Jesus, because he lived a perfect life as a man, he rose again from the dead, and he was approved by God to conquer death and enjoy permanent communion with the Father. And so he ascended to the Father's right hand, and he crosses this void between earth and heaven, this, what Jesus says, it's this uncrossable void. You can't come once I cross this chasm, this void. I once watched a, a mountain climbing documentary called Touching the Void. This guy named Joe Simpson wrote a book, and then they made a movie about it, and it's, he's climbing these, these really tall mountains down in South America, and, and the idea is of this, you know, touching the void is you get up to a certain, certain height, and it's like you're, you're, you're reaching out, and, and, and you're in the heavens, you're, in, you're touching this void, and of course, in the documentary, he doesn't touch the void very long, he ends up falling off the mountain, and falls into a crevasse. He lives, he lives, but the point is, is Jesus crosses the void. He crosses the void. And once he's gone, there is no access to him. Look at this, look at this statement. You cannot come. Where I am, you cannot come. Now, I want to show you the privilege of the Christian, the privilege of the believer. I want you to turn to to the right, to John 13. Jesus is going to say something very similar to his disciples. John 13, verse 33. Jesus says, little children, yet a little while I am with you. Now it's a really short period, right? Now he's going to be crucified the next day. A little while longer I am with you. And look at this. You will seek me and just as I said to the Jews, so now he's referencing what, what we're studying. Now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. So now he's saying it to the disciples. You've got to think, man, what, Jesus, what are you talking about? And then he, he goes into this new commandment about love. He just diverts into this. Look at verse 34. He says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another by this. All people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So now he's talking about love and Simon Peter's still over there scratching his head. He said, Lord, hold up for a second. I get the love thing, but what's this thing that you just said before that about where you're going? He said, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you've denied me three times. But implicit in that statement is that once Peter's life ends, that he will then follow the Lord and be with the Lord. Now jump down to verse 3 of chapter 14. Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. 
That's part of where he's going. He says, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And then look what he says to the disciples. Now he says, and you know the way to where I am going. It, in this a comforting statement, of course, Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you, you are going. How can you know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's the exclusivity of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you want to cross the void into heaven, there's one way. We made t-shirts a couple years ago. It just says, the way. There's one way to heaven. And all of the other religions won't get you there. They all fail. Jesus, and the reason why is because Jesus is the only one that has crossed the void. He's the only one. All the other religions are some man, probably prompted by demons, coming up with some rituals and works to try to convince people that this is a way that you can work your way to heaven. Jesus says, no, it's I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's certain. And I could point you other verses where Jesus says something similar about the believer, that it is the privilege of the believer once they die to cross this void from what is physical into the heavenly spiritual realm. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 5, 8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. This is the certainty for the Christian. When you die in your caskets here or some other church, you're laying in the casket, you are no longer here. Your spirit is now present with the Lord. Amen? That's, that is our certain hope. So lastly, look at verse 35. This is the apprehensive amazement of the, the priest and the officials. The, the apprehensive amazement. The Jews, this is, these are the leaders, the Pharisees, the, the high priests, they're, they're amazed, they're stunned at what Jesus has just said, but they don't understand. They say to one another, where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? You could translate that word Greeks, Gentiles. Does he intend to go teach the Gentiles? So they... Uh, they think that Jesus is going to leave Israel. He's going to go on a traveling teaching tour, and he's going to go to Jews that have been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, and he's going to gather a crowd of Gentiles and start a teaching ministry amongst them. That's what they, that's what they, they think. Uh, here's what's, what's interesting, is Jesus wasn't a stooge. They took Jesus seriously, so serious that they wanted to arrest him. So when Jesus says, I'm going away, they believe him. They just don't understand where he's going. So they're saying, maybe he's going to go uh, teach the Gentiles. He's going to go out throughout the Roman Empire. And of course, the irony of this is, is that is exactly what happens in the book of Acts, in the power of the Holy Spirit. What do the apostles do? They go to the Gentiles. Peter ends up in Rome. You know, Thomas goes up into Ukraine. Paul's all over the place. So they take the gospel to the world. 
and the power of the Holy Spirit. That's exactly what ends up happening. And then look at verse 36. They repeat Jesus' statement from verse 34. They say, what does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come. They don't have spiritual eyes to understand. And sadly, their moment of decision has passed. And it's done. It's done for them. It's judgment for them. Jesus says, 821, what? You will die in your sins. You will die in your sins. So this is an important lesson. Don't let that moment pass. Children, students, mature people, don't let that moment pass. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And you will be saved. Now, what's the application of all this? I want to give you a framework for why this is so important. And, and I think this is going to help you apply it in your own life. But I want you to know, and this is how I'm going to apply it, I want you to know why did Jesus ascend into heaven. If somebody were to ask you, why did Jesus ascend into heaven, what would you say? Don't look at my answers. What would you say? Somebody were to ask you, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? And if you know the answers to this, not only are you going to have the apologetic down, but it's going to be of a great comfort to you personally. Let me give you these very quickly. Let me give you the six reasons why Jesus did this, okay? First, to provide assurance that our life is in heaven. I want you to turn to Colossians. I'm just going to turn to a bunch of verses really quick. Colossians 3, verses 1 to 3. Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Where's Christ? He's seated at the right hand of God. He says, Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. Now listen, this is the, the reality for us. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Your life is hidden with Christ and God. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. If Jesus were here today, right now, bodily, on this platform, how would you know, how would you know that he had actually procured eternal salvation for you? Because he's here. Because he's in heaven, you know that your eternal life is in heaven. Amen? Th that... It, there, there is a man in heaven. One man has made it on his own merit. There is a man in heaven, and he's gone all the way there. If he was still here, we wouldn't know. We wouldn't know. It, does he really save or does he not? But we know. And, and what Paul says is that this assurance is to spur us on to live a holy life. He says, look, you know that you're one with Christ in faith. Where is Christ now? He's in heaven. So that means that your future life is where? In heaven. You have a few temporal years on this planet. So what are you going to think about? Are you going to think about the things of this earth or the things of heaven for all of eternity? That's your future life. That's who you are. That's your identity. 
Look what, he, look what he says in the next verses. He says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. That's the second coming application. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On, a, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So set your mind on things above where you are. That's where your life is. That's where your assurance is. Two, second reason why Jesus ascended into heaven, and we touched on this earlier, is to receive us in our eternal home. To receive us in our eternal home. Remember John 14, Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. I go to prepare a place for you. Jesus is in heaven to prepare an eternal kingdom for us. And, and one of the really, I think, unique things that Jesus does in this ministry, and you see this at the death of Stephen. Remember, Stephen is, is stoned for, for preaching the gospel, for preaching that Christ is the Son of God. He's being stoned, and at the middle, in the, in the middle of being stoned, before he dies, it says, but he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. What was Jesus doing? I mean, Jesus sits on a throne, right? He stood up to welcome him home. You see that? That's why he stood up. And... Um, this, this past week marked the, uh, the 26th anniversary of my, my father's death, and uh, I was just even reading an account of another Marine pilot who was flying that night. He took off from an aircraft carrier, was flying here into to Cherry Point, North Carolina, and he, saw, he, he got a mayday call on the, uh, on the radio just about the, the search and rescue that was going on uh, further south in the Atlantic, and he said, I had no idea that my friend was the one that they were searching for. Um, but in the middle of that mayday call, ships are going out, planes are going out to try and find my dad. Here's what was going on, is the Lord Jesus was standing there to welcome him home. And if you're a believer, man, how do you face death in this world? Uh, death of a loved one, your own death, Man, I would so much rather Jesus to be there on the other side to welcome me there. Wouldn't you? Than sending me off? That's where, that, he, that's where I'm going. I remember when I buried my two-year-old niece. I mean, she, she dies in her sleep. Lovely little girl, just completely healthy. Almost two years old. Goes to bed one night, next morning, Sunday morning. Parents find her dead in her crib. How do you face that? How do you face that? Let the children come to me, for such belongs the kingdom of God. The only way you face that is to know that Jesus is standing there, welcoming his saints on the other side. That, that's how you face that. That's, that's Jesus' ministry right now. I think, I don't know this, but I think he stands up for every believer that comes home. Third, to provide his spiritual presence with 
all his disciples. I want you to turn now to the left to, to John 14, beginning in verse 16. John 14, 16. If Jesus were still here in his body, he could spend time with a few of us, but he would be limited by the fact of his body. But look what he says in verse 16. He says, I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper, a paraclete, a counselor, to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive. So this is something, the Holy Spirit, that is only given to the Christian, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you. How did the Holy Spirit dwell with them? Well, he dwelled in the, on the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember, Jesus was anointed without measure by the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, this, is the, this will be the new reality, and he will be in you. Now look at verse 18. I, I find this so comforting. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. You think about an orphan. I mean, can you, I, I can't imagine my kids being orphaned and, and not having a parent to guide them in the world. And Jesus says, look, I'm not going to leave you like an orphan where you're, where you're stranded, where you're lost, where you, where, you, where you don't have direction, where you don't have a mother's love and a, and a, and a father's guidance. I'm not going to leave you like that. I am going to come to you in the person of the Holy Spirit verse 19, he says, yet a little while and the world will see me no more. But you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you in me and I in you. Jesus takes up residence with the believer experientially in the person of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said, great commission, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Paul says, 2 Corinthians 13, 5, do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. And what this means, friend, is that wherever you go in the world, wherever you go in the world, if you're in Christ, you're not alone. You're not alone. Christ is with you. I remember when I was sent to Japan, I didn't know a single person in Japan flew to Tokyo, to Narita, uh, took, took a, a shin train, took, took buses to the base, didn't know a single person. But you know what? I was comforted by the, my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's with you wherever you go. Wherever you go in this world, you're not alone. Fourth, this is fourth reason why he ascended, is the advancement of the mission through the giving of the Holy Spirit. Turn to chapter 16. Turn to chapter 16, beginning in verse 5. Jesus says, But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, Where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. So they're, they're filled with sorrow about the fact that he's leaving. But he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, that's the, the Holy Spirit, the Paraclete, will not come to you. But if I go, 
I will send him to you, and when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. Now listen to this. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So what he's talking about is the writing of the New Testament, that the Holy Spirit will declare to the apostles the truth, and they will write the truth, and the, the, Spirit, the Spirit will bear witness to the truth. And moreover, Jesus says, look, your mission is going to be empowered by the Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will come, he will convict the world concerning sin concerning righteousness, concerning judgment. The Holy Spirit is going to do the work of ministry. He's going to do the work externally in people's hearts, this work of conviction, and he's also going to do the work eternally in you. I don't want you to turn there, but in Ephesians chapter 4, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Paul talks about the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit imparts to every single believer, gifts that enable to bring about the accomplishment of the mission, gifts of evangelism, teaching, hospitality, so on and so forth, so that the body of Christ might carry out the mission in the world. Fifth, why did Jesus ascend into heaven? This is so important for you to understand. This is a massive truth. But he ascended to carry out a priestly ministry, to carry out the priestly intercession for the believer. I want you to turn to Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4, verse 15. What's Jesus doing right now in heaven as we speak? He is praying and interceding for us, for me, for you. Hebrews 4, 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He's a man. He is a true man. That's why he's able to intercede for us. Let us then with confidence, with boldness, with determination, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What he's saying there is that you can have boldness to approach a holy God that God is in his temple, that God is, is holy and glorious, but we have a great high priest who is mediating on our behalf so we can approach with boldness and receive mercy and grace to help in the time of need. He says in Hebrews seven twenty five, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Did you know that Jesus is praying for you every single minute of every single day? He doesn't sleep. He doesn't stop. McShane, I love this quote. I know you've heard it from me before. He says, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. So that means that you can face this world with boldness. Look, if you're going into that meeting and you know that Christ is praying for you, what, how does that change your perspective? Wow. And then six, 
Sixth reason why he went into heaven, why he ascended, is to reign until he puts all his enemies under his feet. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 25, he says, for he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. That's what he is doing now. God has given him a rule and reign over the cosmos, and he is reigning now at the right hand of the Father. And what, what will happen is this, is one day the Lord Jesus will hand over this delegated rule to the Father. He will come back. John says in Revelation 19 that he will come with fire in his eyes, flaming sword, riding a white horse, and he will come back. And then will be the resurrection from the dead, and Jesus will judge every single person and establish his rule on the earth. Jesus wears the crown now. He is ruling and reigning now. And so the response to, for us, and, and this, is, this is so important, is that Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's been crowned king. He's been crowned king. And, and, and I don't understand believers who say that I believe in, in Jesus as my Savior, but I don't submit to him as my Lord. I don't understand that because he is Lord. He is reigning. We sang, crown him with many crowns. He's Lord above all. He is Lord. He is reigning. He is ascended. So if he's, he is Lord, why don't we live like it? Too many believers live like hell when Christ is reigning in heaven. He is Lord. And he calls us to submit to his lordship and live for him. I want to close with uh, just a, a short quote from Calvin. Listen to this. He says, this, the reason why the scripture testifies that Christ now holds dominion over the heaven and the earth in the room of the Father is that we may not think that there is any other governor, any other Lord, any other protector, any other judge of the dead and the living, but may fix our contemplation on him alone. We acknowledge, it is true, God as the ruler, but it is in the face of the man Christ Jesus. He is Lord. He has ascended, and he reigns, and he intercedes. Praise be to God. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for this plan that you've enacted, this, this sovereign plan to send your Son into the world to save sinners, the resurrection from the dead, the time spent in that short period with the apostles in this ascension into heaven where he was crowned king and where he has sent the Holy Spirit to us to dwell within us, to carry about your mission on this earth, that you've given us spiritual gifts in order for us to, to teach your word, in order for us to proclaim the good news in this dark world. We, pray, we thank you, Lord, that you are ruling and, and reigning, and what a confidence that is, that not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from your sovereign will, that you are bringing about history to your desired ends. We thank you, Lord, for the, the sure hope of heaven, that there is a man right now in heaven that has attained heaven for us, and that you are there welcoming your saints home. Glorious day, glorious news. We thank you for these things, all for your glory and your honor. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening. 
For more sermons, information, and events, check out our website at capitalcommunitychurch.com.